Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What say you, Richard Ellett Murdoch? Are you guilty or not guilty of the felonies wherein you stand and die? Not guilty. How shall you be tried? By God and my country. The exact time when Paul and Maggie Murdoch were murdered. At the end of the investigation, it was obvious. I'm not here to work with them. Okay? And the whole point is to have this not fall in the wrong hands. This case is unique, it's unprecedented in South Carolina history. Receiving uh, over the past two to three days uh, emails concerning a social media post by Mr. Griffin commenting upon uh, witnesses' testimony and uh, quality of the investigation by the state. And, and it appeared on my Twitter feed this morning. Mr. Griffin, uh, is this part of your defense strategy or? Your Honor, all I did was retweet an article that was published in the Washington Post. I didn't put any comment. I didn't make any statement. I just retweeted an article that's in the newspaper. That's all I did. Welcome to Unsolved South Carolina, the Murdoch Murders Money and Mystery, our daily recap of what's going on in the double murder trial of Alec Murdoch. I'm Ann Emerson. I'm joined by our exclusive legal analyst, Charlie Condon, South Carolina's former attorney general, our executive producer, Drew Tripp, and our uh, chief photographer for CIV is Max Harrison, and he's also uh, running all of the production behind the scenes here. Uh, so you can hear what happened today. And also, um, he can field questions. So if you have any questions and you're watching this on one of our live streaming platforms, please, uh, please send us a message so we can get something answered for you. Uh, what you just heard was uh, Jim Griffin, the defense attorney, getting admonished for sending out a tweet which was really interesting. It kind of shows where we are in sort of our modern uh, yes. legal. Wasn't it fascinating? It was fascinating. And okay, so basically, in the end, it was just an admonishment, right? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. but what does that mean when we hear like the defense attorney? Remember, this is a first full day for the defense to finally get to get their case going and to get hit with that, you know, by the judge before you even start well, yeah, what out. A yeah, what a moment. Uh, Tuesday morning here, we're starting up first full week. Uh, we had that, we also had a juror who, who fell out due, due to sickness, but that moment where 
And to me, this is another reason we need to keep the Judge Newman fan club going because I thought the way he handled this, and I'm assuming there's an order or something in place that restricts this type of activity by the defense counsel, but instead of really going what might have occurred in other situations, really kind of going overboard and making mm -hmm. it a punitive, a big spectacle, which I think could distract from the goal here, which is to finish this case with a fair and just verdict. He put Jim on the spot, you would have to say, and made his point mm -hmm. without going overboard with it. And mm -hmm. I thought the point was really well taken. I'm confident we won't see further activity like this by anyone in the courtroom relative to getting close to crossing any lines here. But it was quite the moment, wasn't it? And I think you're right. It did. It did talk. It did speak to me about how the world has changed here in just a, really a few short mm -hmm. years. Now we're we're in the middle of a major trial, and you've got a judge seeing something on his timeline, and he's getting emails. It's 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 a different world now, isn't it? It is a different world, and it was uh, it was interesting. Did you did you see the tweet when it came up from Jim Griffin, Drew? Did I've, you catch that? I've seen it a few times through the weekend. Is that right? Uh, yeah. And what did you think when you saw it? Like, did you think, uh-oh? No, I thought it was Jim Griffin thumbing his nose at the legions of online haters he's developed uh, through his and Dick Arputlian's adversarial relationship with certain members of the media. Oh, that's, exactly, that's exactly how I interpreted it, uh, and uh, that and a little bit of ego. And it, Jim, this isn't the first time Jim Griffin has jumped on Twitter and made foolish uh, posts and comments on Twitter or ill-advised, just things that he probably shouldn't have done or probably shouldn't have said but seems too uh, prideful or combative to what better judgment win the day on what he should do. Uh, as far as the impact on the trial, I just thought it was entertaining as all heck <laughs> to start out yeah, that here, way. This, this is how we're going to start off our week, right? <laughs> just absurd. Yeah, and we should point out the jurors didn't see this, so it wouldn't have any impact right. on the jury. Right, this was before the jurors came mm -hmm. in, and in fact, to the point that I remember um, the judge actually said, and we hope that no jurors see your tweet or anything, but they're not really supposed to be on social media, are they? They're not supposed to be, because they could be getting stuff in their feed about Murdoch. Yeah. I mean, they probably, who isn't right now? So for sure. Um, let's move on to uh, the first witness. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the very first witness for the defense, but it was certainly the one we've been waiting for. This person we have not heard from since the double murders, by far the closest to uh, dealing with this whole yes. crime. Right. Yes. Uh, Buster Murdoch, the only surviving oldest son of um, Alec Murdoch, takes a stand and reveals that there is more known about Alec than meets the eye, mm -hmm. what we knew before. Mm -hmm. Let's play it. that your dad had a, um opioid addiction. Uh, a little bit, I knew a little bit about the usage of pills. What did you know about it? I knew that, I knew that either my brother and mom had found them at some point and then, you know, told them like, hey, we found these. And he, I want to say the 2018, around Christmas, he went to a, a detox facility. You, you thought he, he had beat it? That's right. Yes, sir. 
Is that not leading the witness? Um, you thought that he'd beat it? Uh, no, no question, but I think where the prosecution was coming from is don't object if it's not really hurting you. And so there's a lot of information that's being really spewed out through the courtroom in objectionable question forms. But I think the general rule of those that uh, try cases is don't object unless it hurts you. I have noticed, though, a couple of times, and again, this could be the old armchair quarterback because I'm not there in the courtroom thinking as quickly as they need to think, but there were a few times I thought there were some periods of, of questioning on both sides that, that should have been objected to. So that's a good point. Well, and so overall, like that was one thing that Buster said to us. He, we, you know, we heard for the first time that the family was aware, uh, or we think that they were aware. He says they were aware that Alec Murdoch had a, a maybe a, a drug problem. Yeah, and the family knew, and he'd been to a detox facility, which I, again, just thinking through it a little bit, I would think his law partners, right, would. Where's yeah, Alex? He's not here. He's getting being help. treated. I just can't, I know it's a hip up situation possibly, but I would think they would, aren't those things typically like a month long or it takes some time? At least don't a they? couple of weeks, right? Yeah, at least. So he'd have, maybe he just said he was on vacation and left it at that. But it was surprising to me because that was a physical act of going to someplace for treatment for these pills. And what's that, three years before the murders? Yeah. This was before the boat case even. Yeah. So the boat case was in 2019. And, um, you know, that's that that raises a lot of questions in mm -hmm. itself. I mean, we know that his relationship with Eddie dates back to 10 years. In Eddie Smith, his mm -hmm. quote unquote, according to his own defense attorneys, his longtime drug dealer is the way they spoke about Eddie Smith, cousin Eddie. Mm -hmm. um, so we know that he had. Well, we think we know. Right. You know, we think we knew a timeline, but we didn't know that the family was in on the the family secret. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was I thought that was interesting. Was Buster an effective witness? Hmm. I think stepping back from it all, I feel like that he ended up being effective on a couple of points, but overall, sort of a, a bit of a neutral witness. I actually thought he was going to be much more of a blockbuster for them pushing the ball forward, but he was good. One thing he was really good on, I thought, was helping to try to explain how the defendant on the night of the murders parked not in the driveway. Now, whether they have a rebuttal on that or not, I don't know, but that testimony about, well, we often go in the back, it's easier to get in to see uh, the folks in there about parking, parking in the back. I wasn't able to see exactly where they were pointing to on the diagram, but it appeared to me that he was being somewhat persuasive on, well, we do park there off the driveway, so it's not as suspicious you might think yeah. where he parked. So that was good. But other than that, though, there's one other point. On the clothing, they tried to say, well, the, the seafoam shirt is missing because his clothes are, I take it, the clothes are everywhere across several counties. I mean, there are like yeah. seven locations of clothing, yeah. which... South I Carolina, I know he had a closet in every house, according to the and, way they talked about office, it. And his office and his car. Uh, and... Uh, to that point, though, it, it's a new shirt. The, right? the the state, or I'm sorry, the defense still has not produced those clothes. Right uh, to the yes. point that they're trying to make about. Well, I mean, those clothes could be anywhere, but they haven't produced them. Mm -hmm. True. I mean, to to kind of put that all to bed. Uh, regarding Buster, I found some of his testimony clear as mud. 
Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't remember. I get, the one thing I can give him uh, trying to objectively uh, interpret what I'm hearing, he didn't seem to know a ton about his dad's opioid addictions. Uh, addiction, I'm sorry. Uh, you give the time frame 2018 Buster's in college mm-hmm. when that would have been when they would have confronted him about that. Uh, it, he probably knew more than he said or needed to say up on the stand, but I, I can also buy there being some out-of-the-loop issues there. He, he's, he, was all, he was out of the house. He was gone by then. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in his 20s by then, I think. Uh, yeah, he would have had to have been. So uh, that's one thing. I, I just I think just generally observing that, I found a lot of his answers to be less than fulfilling uh just mm-hmm. like it, you kind of expected more mm-hmm. but uh more unfulfilling than maybe buster's answers i thought was the state's approach to cross-examination You're on buster you? Uh, i was really thinking they opened the door specifically with buster to go into a line of questioning that would have been really damaging to his father and to set that up we heard Jim Griffin play the sled interview, mm-hmm. the second sled interview from June 10th, where Alec gets in the car and there was all this debate. It, this feels like a lifetime ago. All the debate about whether he, did Alex say, I did him so bad, or did Alex say, I, they did him so bad, I versus they. Mm-hmm. And sled special agent Jeff Croft was sure he heard Alec Murdoch say, I. And the whole internet following this trial blew up and we were divided over I versus they. Well, Jim Griffin goes, Buster, you know your dad's voice, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, what did you hear him say there? And Buster goes, well, I heard him say, they did him so bad, him being Paul. They did him so bad. And you know what? I also heard him say the very same thing on a couple occasions the night of the murders in the house. And so Buster is very, very confident that he heard his father say, they, not I. So not that that matters really to the long-term scale of the trial. Uh, but as far as defense cross or state prosecution, cross-examination of the defense's witness, Buster, you know your dad's voice, right? Doesn't that open a door to play another video that they could have, uh, they could have gone to? So Charlie, I'll pass it off to you. What did you, what was your assessment of the, the, the state's very limited cross-exam of Buster? I'm confident of this, that, and I've been in their shoes on the prosecution side, but I really think what went after Buster testified, I think, and I'm assuming this went through the whole prosecution team, was something like this. Let's be careful here. He didn't really hurt us. Hold back. Let it go. We don't need to throw any long passes here, so to speak, to use a football analogy. Just be really, really safe, and don't let him hurt us. And so to your point, I agree. There are, that was a point they could have made. I think they probably thought, well, it's already established. That's his voice. Let's not take any chances. He might try and throw something else in there he didn't think about on direct. So I think they sat back, and it may end up not being a wise strategic decision, but I'm confident they made a strategic decision to really keep a very limited cross-examination. Because you're right, he was wide open for all sorts of questioning that could have gone on. That could have gone on for several hours. I'm confident they could have made a lot of points, but they probably were worried about the points that he could have made not in their favor that would hurt their case. What uh, just just from a procedural perspective, mm-hmm. 
because the kennel video is already in evidence mm -hmm. and Jim Griffin asked him, did, do you know your father's voice? Is that enough of a leeway oh, yeah, open door open. to, we generally have very uh, broad latitude. You notice how judge Newman always says cross examination when you feel like someone's like really kind of getting mm -hmm. out there mm -hmm. in South Carolina, it's been my experience that you can go really far afield on cross examination. I understand in some jurisdictions it's limited to things that are brought up on direct or more closely related to here. It's, you, you 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 get anything that's arguably the least bit relative uh, re relevant that lets you go on it. So I think with that witness in particular, given his intimate knowledge of the family, the amount of information that the state could have potentially used in their favor was immense. Mm -hmm. But again, I, I really, really feel like they made this strategic decision. Like, and again, we, we've been here for what now? This is our fifth week. Mm -hmm, 21 days. We've seen the testimony. I thought that timeline or that uh, distillation of events from electronic information or digital information was so strong on Friday. I feel like over the last three days, they've stepped back from that and thinking like, okay, if we can just keep it where we are, we can get a verdict and don't let any witnesses hurt us. And that might be a segue into the next witness because I felt like yeah. they might have held back a little bit too much on him personally. Okay. Well, yeah. Let's uh, let's listen. We had a forensics engineer come in. He was the defense expert on the crime scene. Was flown in or drove in? Who knows? I think he's from North Carolina. So yeah. yes. he came in, Mike Sutton, and uh, tells us what his theory is about uh, the shooter. And basically, it comes down to to one main idea, and that is that Alec Murdoch's just too tall to... Too tall to do it. Too tall to do it. Let's hear what he had to say about it. And whoever shot this shot, or these shots, well, first of all, the quail pan shot was 5'2 to 5'4. That is the most likely explanation, yes. And we know that um, Alec is 6'4". Yes. So could you say to a degree of engineering, certainly more probably than not, that Alec Murdoch on the night of June 7th did not fire that, fire that shot into the quail pen? In my opinion, it's very unlikely that he fired that shot. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Very unlikely that Alec Murdoch fired that shot. That's exactly, he said that he would, Charlie, mm -hmm. do you, what happens when you say, well, Alec didn't fire that shot. What would you say as to that as a prosecutor? Well, you know, looking at both sides of this, and again, since I actively defend criminal cases, I was thinking that they needed to have something going for them today, uh, the defense did. I feel like uh, some may disagree with me, but I thought this witness was very effective for the defense, that it, it started the thinking that the evidence may be inconsistent. And again, the burden's always on the state, so the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So there was this... Well, is this a doubt now? We have an expert witness saying it's highly unlikely. Is that enough for, for some of the jurors or all the jurors to say, well, they haven't met the standard? And so what I felt like was going on as the day wore on, I noticed the assignment got a little bit boring, not to me, because there was some intense back and forth and thinking on how both the 
And I also thought the redirect by Attorney Hartputley made that witness stronger, but there was an intense back and forth on how to discredit this witness. We had a lunch break, too, so had plenty of time to think about it, how to cross-examine him. And his basic expert opinion was that when he did the, the line, so to speak, mm -hmm. that you had to have a really, and I think uh, the prosecutor talked about a 12-year-old doing the yeah, shooting. Yeah, the I prosecutor's was like, like, what, 12-year-olds did mm -hmm, the crime? Mm-hmm. Basically, the expert opinion was that it had to have someone who was really, really short do it. Of course, the obvious, and this may be a bit of an armchair quarterback here, but the obvious comeback to that to me would be, well, can't the shooter get on the knees or get down low? And he's, Alec, you're talking about how tall Alex is. Well, if he gets on his knees and crouches down, wouldn't he be in that line? That, mm -hmm. to me, would be a very obvious uh and he kind of did that in a way with the line um, cross-examination. But I, I actually thought maybe a visual might have been even getting the expert to do it himself. He, he mm -hmm. put the line up. You could get somebody down who really tall to, to get mm -hmm. within that line. And so, but I, I'm confident that as this trial winds up, one of the last witnesses for the state, if not the last witness, is going to be, we're going to see Dr. Ken Kinsey again. And the rebuttal. The, in rebuttal. I, I just feel like it's a setup for him to come in there and to try and be as persuasive as he was the first time. But I did think, and also on the acoustics, what did y'all think? I mean, I thought the, in the abstract, I would have thought a rifle shot from whatever it is, 1,100 feet away or so, would have been heard throughout the valley, so to speak. But I thought he was effective on being inside a well-built house that you wouldn't hear the shot. What do you think? I... Got to be honest that I'm still a tiny bit skeptical Not of that. It. And what I would want to see more of uh, Sutton's parameters for how he did that test. Like what was the audio settings on the equipment that he used? Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know. That, that's well, still the question becomes, will the state have a witness to do that? Because yeah. it seems like they're not prepared on that point. I don't know if they have any experts to dispute that or do that. They, they asked him about it, but they didn't get... Um, they didn't get far into it. I just, in general, I, you know, it is what it is. We were played, we were played an audio clip at a certain level of volume mm -hmm. through the main speakers that we all heard, and it, it's okay. You, you can fair enough. You can barely hear the shot on that one audio recording at whatever volume it was played. But who's to say uh, again? And the, the state raised that point. Um, I thought. To your point about they could, the cross-exam, the state could have done more. The best we got from the state in cross-exam was he got he got um, Sutton to throw out some numbers about how high the, the barrel of the gun would have been. And the best they got was Fernandez extended a tape measure, held it out at arm's length, and said, is this how high? And you could see that it was it a It got taller, didn't it? Yeah. It, More consistent could, with the defendant's height. Yeah. That was it, good. And you could see that it was at perfect shoulder le shoulder height for, you could see that it was at perfect shoulder height for mm -hmm. Fernandez. And then he's like, oh, when one of the other shots, oh, was it this how tall? And he, and he got down on a knee and he held his and he held his arm out at arm's length with the tape measure and it was perfect for to the floor, to his hand out at a slight, slight upward angle. To demonstrate, right. yeah, it very easily could have been on someone on a knee making the, and he, they also, they really attacked Sutton on the fact that your, your whole theory is about a person who is five foot two standing up and not moving just, and 
and also shooting from not the shoulder, but kind of shooting from down below the armpit in between the hip and the armpit a little bit. It, he very he was very rigid in his parameters uh, of, of his searches. That's is what a good is, point. is and, the and, 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 and to your uh, comments, what the prosecutor might have been thinking, let me hold back here because I've got a really good witness who's going to prove what I am intimating or having him admit to in my cross. So leave it alone. I've got a good witness coming and no sense taking chances with having him take back Muddle what he's it. admitted to. So that, well, that could be and a strategy. I think it was a lot of variables, like what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're right. all of these variables. Were they both moving? Was one person moving? It was like, mm -hmm. you know, that that was concerning. But it's I will Sutton go back. Said, sorry. Go ahead. Sutton said he didn't consider any of those variables. Right. And he didn't consider variables like, did the bullet go through a medium such as a human body before it, yeah, <laughs> on yeah. its trajectory? Yeah, or something, yeah. Which... You know, he, he contradicted point. himself. He's like, oh, when a bullet ricochets, it takes a different flight path, yeah. and it might be tumbling versus yeah. oblong. Yeah. And he also said, I had understood he was going to be a good expert witness for the two-shooter theory, but he said one person could have done it, yeah. which surprised me a bit. Okay, so here was my uh, take on that, too. How effective was it to have those two shooters up on their flying 3D wow. animation, though? I, I mean, for the jurors to be looking at the whole time, that's like visual mm -hmm. uh, recognition. Mm -hmm. It's just like over and over again, you start seeing the same image that they were putting up. I thought that was a clever uh, technique by the defense, just to have that in their brain. Because that point. was a very visual moment in the trial to be able to see that. I think that that's going to stick with them. I think, well, you're right. I mean, the old saying in trial work is you can talk about it and talk about it, but a picture is worth a thousand words, and it's so true. That's how we, I think we learn information is mostly through, through looking, not so much hearing. And so repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. But if you can get a picture in that, that shows what you want to show, and you're right, they had a, that was a good visual for them. I got to say how it just as an observer and someone trying to piece this together in my head, how effective having that 3D model was for me mm -hmm. to be able to finally put together, okay, where in the heck is this coil pin they're talking about in this doghouse? Yeah. Like it, the, the visual in my mind that I had created was so askew and different mm -hmm. from what it actually is. Mm -hmm. And seeing that 3D model today mm -hmm. was extraordinarily yeah. helpful. And no one's talking about a crime scene visit now, are we? We haven't heard that, have we? So that may be well, off the Well, we table. have heard about it. Well, we heard about it in the opening right, statements, right? but not right? recently. But not recently. And I mm -hmm. wonder if they're concerned about how much time that's going to take mm -hmm. to actually get there. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, mm -hmm. I feel like, I don't know, are you picking up on this, like this need yeah, to start? I think it's speeding up, it's speeding up. And yeah, I think it would be remiss too. I don't know if you caught this on, on, on the television, but the, the point where Attorney Hartputlian took the 300 blackout oh, yeah. and pointed it towards Attorney General Wilson. <laughs> and that was a moment, right? Yeah. It was. He said it was, uh, it was pointing to, towards the prosecution table, and he made some comment, this, it's, it's tempting. Yeah, he just said, he chuckled and said tempting and then laughed again and moved on with his day. And I was able to see uh, the court TV camera facing the mm -hmm. prosecution table most of them didn't react. Yeah, Alan Wilson and John Metters, they kind of, you could see they kind of smiled and, and reacted mm -hmm. to it. Everybody else just sat there kind of stone-faced and looked yeah, at it like, this can, isn't I funny. I can argue that's a bit in poor taste, right, given oh, where we are. It's a murder. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, uh, it, it was one of those moments you thought, did I just see that? And 
I think we did see it. Well, I think it's also vintage Harpootlian. He's constantly like kind mm -hmm. of distracting from the commentary, always moving and like kind of moving around that, trying to, to get around certain things. The jurors are paying attention to that. Mm -hmm. They're forgetting perhaps some of the cross on their, you know, the, these things stick out because it's getting their attention. And I, I think that's what he's very effective at is getting these jurors' attention when he needs to. Although I have to say, you know, I, I did think that Metters did a good job. I wanted to bring up this one moment with John Metters on the state side, right when they started um, talk about trying oh, to about his... grab attention. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so Metters, Metters gets started and all he says, he kind of leans in as he does. Metters spends a lot of time between the jury box mm -hmm. and the witness and to the point where it's a very intimate sort of- mm -hmm. uh, He gets in their space. He gets in, in their in space. In a non-threatening way. So Metters gets up there and he starts talking to Buster and he goes, I'm so sorry for what happened to your family. Mm -hmm. And Harpootlian's like, what are you saying? I can't hear you. Mm -hmm. What did you think of that? I thought it was, uh, I, actually, I don't know if I've ever really seen that in a, in, a, in, a, in a criminal prosecution like that, but I thought it was really effective and really kind of touching because he expressed sympathy, also talked well of, of, his, uh, of his grandfather, mm -hmm. Sister Murdoch, and said something about he was kind to me when I was an assistant sister. I, I thought it was a really effective way to start. And he also, to your point, though, I mean, he kind of laid off of him, right? He didn't really get going on anything that would cause heartburn, so to speak. So, again, I think him that was a strategic decision to leave him alone. He didn't hurt us. And on the points he did hurt us, he really wasn't going to change that much, although he did get them to look at the diagram. And I'm assuming the diagram had him maybe a little bit further away from the home where he should have been if you were going to go to the home. I didn't get a chance to see that because we were blocked from that. Yeah. So I think that maybe harp on that uh, in, uh, further in this case. Yeah. And that was one of the points, no matter where Alec ended up parking at, the part they made the point that his route was a good bit not aligning with the normal uh, entryway. I think that was kind of the point, the, the right. normal entryway. Yeah. And he helped on the phone call because he said that we typically would call ahead. So that was, yeah. uh, that was there about a few Almeida. points. Yeah, there are a few. Yeah, Almeida. Almeida. Well, tomorrow we, we've got a couple, we're probably going to have more expert witnesses. That's what we're expecting. We're what, expecting are, what are we expecting tomorrow? Cell phone, I heard, cell phone person. Cell phone and expert. one of the law partners at the uh, law firm. That's what I heard too, Mark So we'll Ball. see if it uh, turns up. And there's this backdrop to all this, whether or not the defendant's going to testify. And wow, yes. if he does testify, what a moment that's going to be. That may top, top the Eddie moment by far, I think. I think it absolutely will. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, we talked about this last week, how we thought he was maybe, do they do that? Do they kind of float a trial balloon to see what oh, the, actually, oh, yeah, yeah. what the, there's With no the public harm. sinking? Well, uh, I think uh, probably more to the point, they're going to get somebody spending lots of time on what to ask him in cross-examination. So it's going to burn up prosecution resources and energy. Because if there's any thought of him testifying, because oftentimes in a criminal case, someone, he's not testifying. You just know that. They'll tell you and you mm -hmm. kind of count on it, particularly if someone has a long record. We'll hear all this bad laundry's out there, so to speak. So at the very least, floating it will make... I'm assuming Creighton Waters would be the cross-examining person. I don't know, but he'd have to spend several nights now going through what the questions would be. Or maybe it's John Metters will do it, but that burns up a lot of time and energy. So at the very least, from a strategic standpoint, it makes sense to do it.
Well, it does it, and, and does it make sense just to float it? Yeah, and float it. Get them, get them spending get time them on that wheels. and uh, talking about it. And if he doesn't testify, they've wasted, I would guesstimate, maybe two full days that t- brainstorming it because it's an important. He he can beat this case, in my opinion, if he gets away with any sort of credit. You talked about the the fee trial. It, he still was convicted, but it threw people off. So if he comes across it as a as a believable person mm-hmm. relative to explaining the inconsistencies, that will go a long way to making this a, <laughs> either a hung jury or a defense verdict. So whether he can do that or not, I think is up to the cross-examination. Because I'm assuming, obviously, if you're going to directly examine him, he's going to have to explain the dog kennel yep. and all the other two or three major things we've talked about. So I'm assuming he's got a, a version on that. He's it's got terrible. to explain the kennel video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If he doesn't explain it, mm-hmm. we don't know what we and can And the clothing do. he'd have to explain. And I, I, I mean, it, but I'm starting to buy, like, the whole idea that his clothes are all over the place. I mean, he was in... You know, the, for the defense. Yeah, argument. Buster said that too. He sweated a lot. Remember, he put that in there. How he sweated, mm-hmm. so he showered a lot. He was a lot. big guy. But there was a lot of clothing change in a short period, right? It was yeah. just two hours. So I think that hurts him. He's got a. So, but if he's got, I'm assuming he would say I was in shock and I don't remember. But the problem with that shock theory is that his shock would have gone on for several months. Mm-hmm. And he kept telling until he was confronted with Paul's phone, which came up much later. Remember how the happenstance on that? Yeah. So he's got some. So that's why the cross is to prepare a cross examination on him. You've got to get a good night's rest. You've got to be thinking through the timeline on how you get him to admit certain things, and to make him look uh, unbelievable in front of a, a, a jury. So, I think floating a, a defendant that's going to testify a trial balloon is a smart defense strategy because, again, I think they'll burn up some prosecution time. You can correct me if I'm wrong on this, though, Charlie. I. I get the sense that maybe the defense doesn't want to put him up there. And that would be, in my estimation, because of how many of the inconsistencies. And Dick has even said repeatedly, I remember that exchange when they were arguing over whether or not to allow the roadside shooting stuff in. And he makes the joke without the jury present. But are we trying to say that my client is a liar? Because if that's what we're like, um, yeah, uh, stipulate that. Uh, yeah, we will stipulate <laughs> and create more. Yeah, but to that end, there have been several moments throughout the trial where, rather than have having Alec mm-hmm. address it himself, Jim and Dick have tried to introduce things Alec told witnesses as hearsay second and third absolutely. hand and they have been They've on been top of it. They've been telegraphing that, absolutely. That's and, ins- it's insightful you caught that. And They've been telegraphing. I'm not when they, when they When they try to do it, matters, it's usually matters, is right there. No. If that's self-serving hearsay and if Murdoch wants to get that into the record, he can testify. Yeah. And so he, I think there's a little bit of forcing their hand a little bit to see if they're going to put him on there and get him get him to testify to, to that point. I don't know. I think I'm probably reading it a little differently. I think maybe they don't want him up there just because he's got so no, much to answer for. I couldn't agree with you more. I'd be shocked if he testifies. It's just that he does have a strong personality. Maybe he might be the one calling the shots on strategy, yeah. but it would really shock me. I've been shocked before. So well, we'll this whole thing has been shocking. Mm-hmm. Well, we will have a lot more for you uh, tomorrow evening for our daily recap. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, please keep on sending us your questions. I should ask Max before we, well, it looks like more we're questions? wrapping up. Any, okay, so we're good to go tonight. Um, keep your questions coming. I've got a bunch of stuff that I'm going to try and get to on Facebook and Instagram tonight. Twitter, we're on all of the platforms. Let us know, and we'll see you tomorrow night. Thanks so much.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.